I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo, and we have we have just Eddie. It's Teddy Sauer. Needed to France. Eric Marie. It's Mahi Drysdale. It is Sir Matthew Vincent. Thank you for being here. I'm Alex Del Sordo, the Rover's Choice, and we have another interview. And it's like you know, I know you're not here to listen to me talk, right? You're always you see who we have on the uh, on, on the docket today. This dude's been around. He's been around a long time. And like, not to, you know, pressure him. He is kind of old. But what I love is that he's been around rowing so long. He's seen multiple phases. He's seen them all. You know, you see, he started sometime in the early 90s, late 80s. He's been through it uh, with the same program, which is very rare in this world. It's very rare to see a coach be with the same program for nearly his entire career. I mean, the bulk of it, at least. I got Will Porter. He is the head coach of women's Yale rowing. Yeah, that little team up in the New England area that dominates. We're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about his journey from finding the sport of rowing to where he is today, like running an elite program that has won the NCAA title many, many, many times. And then further into the conversation, so we really hope you stay tuned, is we're going to dive into what has NCAA rowing been like over the last 20 years? What has he specifically seen in changes in his tenure at Yale? And then lastly, what's the biggest difference between men rowing and women's rowing at that elite level? So like we see the same teams win year over year on the men's side, but we don't see that on the women's side. So we're going to like learn a little bit about that. So to get started, Will, yeah, thanks for being here, man. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. I'm psyched to do it. And uh, thanks for having me. So, you know, I, I will say people that are, are not watching this, your, your office is incredible, dude. Way better than what I, I got a blank wall behind me. I got nothing going on. Some of that stuff looks pretty old. What, what is the oldest memorabilia, the oldest photo you got in that room right there? There's some stuff in here that, that was here before I got here. So that's how old it is. But uh, yeah, it's just an accumulation of photos over the, over the uh, years. That's all it really is. Yeah. So let's get, let's get started. I asked the same question to everyone. All right. How old were you and where were you when you took that first stroke? Yeah, I was, uh, I was 18. I was at uh, Exeter, Phillips Exeter Academy up in New Hampshire. I was a PG. I went to public high school in Connecticut. And uh, based on my performance in high school, my parents thought it'd be good if I took an extra year, <laughs> sent me up to Exeter. Uh, I was a basketball player. I was a, uh, I was a soccer player and I was supposed to play those two sports up there and the classic, you know, activities fair in the fall. I was in the gym and the rowing guys approached me and sounded like fun. So the soccer coach wasn't too happy, but I, I took up rowing in the fall, you know, I was six, five. So I gave it a shot and, uh, you know, kind of fell in love with it. It, it clicked with where I was, you know, athletically, probably emotionally at the time. I wasn't too happy to be at Exeter. I wasn't, uh, wasn't too excited about it. Gave me a place to vent that, that aggression and, uh, and get it out on the um, Scott River. Yeah. Wow. Right. So, six, so six, five. I mean, you were really starting to build into that frame. You said, now, like, where did you, where did you go to high school again? Where, where, what part of the country? Where were you? Yeah, I grew up in Connecticut, right? I was actually, I grew up about, 10 miles from where I am right now. So yeah, I grew up, I went to uh, Amity High School. Amity High School actually is known uh, for two other, or three other great graduates, Mike Vespoli 
Oh. And the Dreisiacker brothers. They both, oh. They're from, uh, from Amity High School. Yeah, a little bit before me, though. I like the name drop. That's pretty sweet. Uh, I dig that. All right. So you're a Connecticut boy. So, but, but rowing wasn't, I mean, rowing is a big sport in that, in that part of the country. I mean, it's, 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 there's water everywhere. It's all around you. You, did you just not know what it really was? Were you not interested prior to getting to Exeter? Yeah, no, there really wasn't that much rowing, you know, back then in the, you know, 84, all the clubs in, in Connecticut have kind of come up since then. Um, yeah, I didn't no access really back then in my area. I kind of knew what it was about. Father, one of the friends of my father told me about it a little bit, you know. So I knew a little bit going into Exeter that it was an option, but I never, I didn't know anything about the sport. I played every sport growing up. You know, I played hockey, I played football, I played soccer and basketball in high school, baseball, played everything, but rowing's the one that caught me. Were you like any good at those other sports? I mean, you were you, you were supposed to go there to play soccer or some basketball. Were like, were you good or just eh, mediocre? I was probably D three. <laughs> okay. All right, I like that. I, like uh, that. I I actually, you know, one of my uh, a guy who does our strength and conditioning is a guy that we played high school basketball together, and, and we like to joke. He played, I watched. <laughs> <laughs> you're a bench guy. You're a bench guy. All right. So where do you go to? Uh, where do you go to college? Like, so you're there for a year. Right. Uh, clearly you had to get your head on straight, right? You get it on. Where do you go next? Yeah. So is, I was supposed to go to a school out in Ohio called Denison, but, uh, in the spring, I, I really realized I love rowing. So I went to coach Gilcrease at the time and I said, you know, what could I do? Is there anywhere I can go? And he, he said, well, you got three choices that have rolling admission at the time. And it was Syracuse, Northeastern and Rutgers. And so that was right before, you know, graduation, which was the beginning of June. And I said, all right, I went home with my dad and uh, turns out he had a convention down at Rutgers, you know, the next, the next week. So I was like, all right, I'll come down and jumped in the car with my dad. I went down to Rutgers, dropped him off and drove around, found the boathouse. And I walked into the boathouse and there was uh, Steve Wagner, Pops and Bill Lovett. And they were unloading the trailer from uh, the IRA and I got talking to him and I actually filled out the application right there on the desk in the boathouse <laughs> and uh it's funny I don't remember paying a fee or anything like that I filled out this application and uh yeah at the end of August or mid-August I guess I got a big packet from Rutgers saying congratulations here you go and uh yeah I ended up going to Rutgers it was the greatest thing that could have happened to me all right, so this is this is 86. Is this 85, 86 at Rutgers? Right, 85. I started in the fall of 85. And, uh, wow. Yeah. So, so I know quite a bit about Rutgers in the late 90s and early 2000s. There were some real studs that went to that to that program. A yeah. um, lot of speed, but like, was there speed in the in the in the mid to late 80s? Well, so we. Uh, we had a lot of good guys, you know, so I, so in my varsity eight was a uh, guy named Jeff Kolpaki. You might've heard of him. Oh yeah. Sean Hall. You might've heard of him. Yeah. And, uh, Jim Neal is another Olympian and uh, myself. And so, and then, you know, other good guys. So yeah, we were, but we were in college. We were basically like a 500 team. I think our lifestyle did not align too well with <laughs> speed on the water at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so we had a lot of fun 
you know, we, we all fell in love with the sport, obviously, because we kept going afterwards. You know, that was one of Pops' greatest things. He taught us how to love the sport, you know, love the team. Um, you know, it was the, the mid-80s. Life was a lot different on college campuses. Yeah. And wow. What was your favorite? What was, like, your favorite race back at, at Rutgers? Can you think back to, like, that yeah. one memory? Here you go. My senior year, I was a captain. Here we go. And uh, you might have heard of a guy named John Parker. Yeah, come on now. All right. <laughs> John was stroking the Princeton eight, and uh, we hadn't beaten Princeton in a dual race in, I think, 17 or 18 years. And uh, we were racing at Princeton, and we go down there, and it was kind of a rainy, overcast day. And we, you know, on Lake Carnegie, and we go down, and we line it up, and we just, we fired off the line. I remember we had, by the 1,000-meter mark, we had a little open water on Princeton, and uh, yeah. we were going crazy. And, of course, probably got too excited. We went on, I think we won that race by less than a second at the finish line. I think Princeton came flying back on us, and but we beat them. And uh, that's the only time they've beaten Princeton since. So that was, a, that was probably our biggest win. You know, what kind of party, what kind of party was it like back at Rutgers campus that <laughs> you guys must have been going nuts? Well, you know, actually the story gets funnier. The school newspaper named us athletes of the week, whatever, right? So that article, one of the buddies, I think it was uh, Trey Korzewski, got that article, cut it out, put it in a frame and brought it down to the Princeton Boathouse and put it up in the Princeton Boathouse on the wall in the back. Nobody ever noticed it until they were renovating that boathouse and Curtis came across it <laughs> and uh, pulled it out. And there it was. We all signed the back of it. It was, it was classic, but yeah. Dude, that's a bold move, man. I gotta say, that's a pretty, that's a pretty bold move like there. Wow. Athletes of the week at Rutgers. That's sick. All right. So senior year captain, you yeah. clearly love the sport. What was your, uh, because you, you know you're a, you're you're a professional crew coach, so you know you obviously had some kind of funky major you were working on. Like, what was your major uh, back then? Yeah, school. So I uh, did a double major in English and economics, and uh, you know I uh, I was I was good at economics, came naturally, and I kind of liked the reading for the English. So you know it was okay. It was, worked. I was more excited about the rowing in college than I was about my academics. I'll be the first to say it. No, well, no yeah. I appreciate the honesty. So like how, okay. But you, you do some, you do some work in the national team, right? I mean, like, so you clear, I, you know, looking back at doing a quick Google search of Will Porter, there's, there's quite a bit that comes up. Um, and I know you were in the 93 boat. It was a really, really great race. Yeah. There's a big gap between 93 and that like 88, 87, 88, 89. So what was going on in those four or five years? Yeah, a lot of work. Not successful. <laughs> no, I was a, I was a, let's see. I started out going down to Penn AC when I was in college. So I was a Penn AC guy. I did that. Uh, I guess our junior year, we went up to Westside. A bunch of us went up to Westside, rode up there with a great guy, Joe Krakowiak, and uh, had a lot of fun there. And then when I got ready to graduate from college, I wasn't done rowing. So Sean Hall and I jumped in a pair together. Uh, that was the end of our senior year. We were, you know, in shape after the IRAs. We just kept training with Joe. And then we went out to nationals, I guess. And uh, we did pretty well in the elite pair at that time. I think we were, I don't know, third or fourth. And out in Indianapolis, Corzo came up to us 
and invited us to the aid camp to which we said, ah, no, we're going to stay in the paradise. <laughs> so that was probably the first mistake along of many. So we didn't go to the aid camp. We stayed in the pair to go to World University Games and uh, thought we'd roll in there and win that and came up second because a really good guy who was on the team, Mike Still, had, uh, had come out of it. I don't know if he was retired or whatever, but he was in the 87 World Championship eight. Uh, and he was rowing for UCLA and bumped us out. So then it was more sort of Penn AC stuff in the summers while I was coaching at Rutgers, I'd be doing Penn AC. And I made the 91 Pan Am games, uh, made that group. And uh, 92 uh, got brought into selection. They brought, famous story, they brought in uh, 18 of us. I think they kept 16 and sent myself and my pair partner home. <laughs> So there you go. I got that claim of fame. And uh, yeah, I just stuck with it. I contemplated stopping, but I was, you know, still coaching. It was easy to row. It was easy to train. 92, actually, Penn AC did a really good thing for us. The guys who didn't make the Olympic team, they sent an eight to Henley. So we went and raced at Henley. And that was probably a smart move. It kept a lot of guys going. And this was so okay. So the time just get like timing wise, right? So your selection was happening like springtime, beginning of summer, and they're like, "Hey, you want let's throw a boat together?" And you're over there in July and basically August, right? Yeah. Well, we so we uh we stayed in shape and uh, or we were in shape and we just jumped right over there. You know, Henley's in July. It's in the beginning of July. Yeah. So we, we bounced out of selection camp and scrambled together. They had the entry, they had everything submitted, and then we just went straight over. And uh, actually, the guy who stroked that eight was my pair partner, Mike Peterson from Penn, and he came on and stroked the ninety-three-eight and went on and you know became a ninety-six Olympian. But that kept us going, just having that that link. And ninety-three, he was at Hofstra Law School, and he convinced me to row the pair with him. He's like, "Come on, let's keep going." Actually, that fall of ninety-two. And I was like, ah, all right, whatever. And then we were, we raced ahead of the Schuylkill and we won, we beat Parker and Tavy down there. So that got us jazzed up to kind of keep going on. And then Spracklin rolled into town and it was kind of this turnover. And Spracklin, I remember he brought us, anybody who was interested to bring pair up to Yale. And so I wasn't, I had no affiliation with Yale at the time, but so we came up and we just, he brought us all to the top of the river and raced us back down. And then based on that, he took like the top four pairs and took us to Duisburg, uh, Duisburg Regatta. And he kind of started his core group there. And then that led on to the 93-8. And uh, how hard, how hard of a coach is that guy? Like I, I've, I've heard a lot of stories and well, I hear it's like all about grit with this dude. Right. And, and he like, say what you want. Right. I, you know, not, not a lot of people do listen, but <laughs> I have, a, I have an understanding of like, especially at that time in America, when he was here, it had to be so hard, like a constant grind. Yeah. Well, you know, I kind of loved it actually. Okay. So before my, before Spracklin came, you go out on the water. It was sort of the Corso time. And those were some long practices. Those would be like two, two hour plus practices. And then you get, but it's only twice a day. And then Spracklin came in and we started rowing three times a day, but they were shorter practices. They were like an hour and a half practices. They were, you know, you would do a 20 minute power warm up pyramid. 
that would be the beginning of practice. And at the end of that 20 minute power pyramid, you were warmed up and then you'd start the work. So there wasn't a lot of technical stuff going on. It was a lot of rowing, rowing, rowing. Mm-hmm. But Mike was, you know, the king of pain. He, uh, he, he, I think the greatest thing about Mike is you became really comfortable in the boat. Like that's where, so when you were on land, you wanted to get back in the boat because you just became, you spent so much time in the boat. Like that's where you were really comfortable. And oh, interesting. Mike never raised his voice. He'd, you know, always talk to you, but he'd be so direct in his comments. You know, you're not very good, are you? You know, straight <laughs> at you. You know, he puts you on the spot. Uh, but he had a, he really had a knack. Obviously, he's one of the most successful international coaches in the world. He had a knack of just finding combinations and motivating people. You know, the group then, the the pack, he would train us in pairs and it was like, you know, we do shoots and ladders and we do, you know, survive, basically get to the front of the pack rowing. And it really did teach you how to be highly aggressive. And, uh, you know, I don't know if we were in the training zones, proper training zones. There was no discussion of training zones ever. It was get to the front, always get to the front and a lot of strategy, you know. Wow. I'm writing things down. I, I, I there's some of these, I've never heard some of these things that you're saying. Um, now you're like, how are you financially covering yourself? You said that you were coaching on the side, but this is, it's expensive. I don't care who you are. It's expensive to train as much as you're doing yeah. and manage a lifestyle. So what, how are you handling that? Yeah. So when I got ready to graduate college, I was like, okay, I got to support this. So there was no internet. So I wrote 20 letters <laughs> and I mailed out 20 letters to basically all the EARC coaches and maybe Cal Washington and Stanford. And that's what I got one response, Kenny D. <laughs> Ken Dreyfus out of the Stanford replied. And so that I was supporting myself through, that's why I started coaching. I really wasn't dying to be a coach. I was I really wasn't even that interested in coaching. I just figured, well, I know rowing. And if I have access to a university, I'll be able to train and I'll get paid to do it. So Kenny gave me that job and yeah, I was supporting them. Pops picked me up at Rutgers and that was a real job with benefits. Kenny wasn't, it was, I was the second assistant, which I think I made like $5,000 from Stanford. And then he had a buddy that I think paid me. He had a t-shirt shop and I think he paid me like another $10,000. I think I folded t-shirts one day. That was it. <laughs> oh, Ken Dreyfus, that's awesome. Uh, and then oh yeah, Pops picked up Rutgers. So you are, you're just, you're assisting, you're an assistant coach in these times and you're staying, I mean, that you're making rowing everything to you. That is. That was all in, yeah. And so no, I was a freshman heavyweight coach. So that was at Rutgers, freshman heavyweight coach and the boatman. But I, uh, so I had to repair the boats. But uh, oh, at that time when you had, it wasn't so much an assistant coach, there was autonomy. You know, I ran base, freshman heavyweight coaches basically ran their own team. Wow. It was all freshmen. And at Rutgers, I had four eights of guys. And, you know, we would get down to like two or two by spring. And I was running my own practices. And Pops was 100% supportive of me doing everything. So, you know, I would train in the morning, you know, get in a session, get in an afternoon session, coach in the afternoon, sometimes coach two sessions. If I had four eights, I'd, I'd double up and coach two sessions. Just do what it, what it took. But coaching definitely made me a better rower 
Oh, there, there, there's, there's no question. All right. So you do this 93 boat, you guys do well. Yeah. And then is that it? That's it for you, right? Like you're, you, you hang up the oar in, in terms of international competitive racing, right? So 90, so 94, so 93, we finish. I got two stories. All right, here we go. 93, at the worlds. And, uh, this is actually funny. And Ted Nash is running around the world recruiting guys for the head of the Charles. So he's like getting, so he's, so he cherry picked like half the eight. So they're in the Penn AC eight. So Tady's at, at the world's that you're in the pair and he's got the Vesper entry. So, so Mike goes over and gets Pinsent, Redgrave and two other British guys to row in the Vesper eight. So I'm in the Vesper eight with Tady and, uh, I think Mike Porterfield and Mike Peterson were the four Americans. And then Pinson Redgrave and, uh, and two other, uh, Ben Hunt Davis, and I forget the other British guy, but so they come over and we race at the Charles and we just have this epic race against, uh, we set the course record. It was, oh. it was we just ripped it. And, uh, and so I, I continued to train in 94. But what happened in 94 is Spracklin took the core group out to San Diego and there was no training center yet. There was a container at the lake and the guys all lived on the San Diego Naval Base. And my pair partner, Mike Peterson was in for Law School and I was coaching and I was getting older. So I was like, ah, I'm gonna stay here. We're good, we're gonna train in the pair. So we trained in the pair. And then at the you know late spring, we went out there and joined the group and believe it or not, we didn't make the groups <laughs> because, you know, Mike kind of took that core group and they were doing good work. And he took them, he took an eight and a four and went to Henley. They were doing Goodwill games, Henley, Lucerne, but the four, uh, the four didn't do well at Henley. I think they lost to the American lightweight four. So they got sent back. And those of us who got cut got sent over to Princeton. So when we were out in California, Tady stayed back as well. He was coaching the freshman heavyweights at Princeton. So Tady and I were in a pair together. This is funny. I, I, I have the claim to fame of being Tady's last pair partner. And through selection, it wasn't going that well. So I think Mike pulled him out to breakfast one day and said, okay, you can become a coach if you retire right now. <laughs> but we get sent back to Princeton to join up with that straight four from from Henley and Tady's our coach. So Tady's coaching us. So two days ago, he was my pair partner and now he's my coach. And so we're out and we built another straight four. So technically I made the straight four in 94, but so I'm in the straight four in 94 with my college roommate, Jim Neal and, uh, and Tom Murray and Mike Porterfield. And it's a good boat and we're having fun, but I just, I was at the end of my, you know, everybody knows when they're at the end of their career. I was at the end of my career. And uh, I just, you know, I, I should have been the time of my life, but I was kind of dreading going to practice every day. Oh, yeah. I, I kind of realized I'm getting down to the end. And then as fate would have it, I went, we had a weekend off. I went to go see the Grateful Dead in, uh, in the Meadowlands with my wife. And uh, Bob Dylan opened up. And it was an epic concert. And uh, I just had the time of my life. And so the next morning, 
Uh, I guess it was that was that was Saturday night. So Monday morning, I go into practice, and I cleared up my locker, and I said, "Mike, I got, I'm done. I gotta go." <laughs> and we got in a car and drove cross country. But I, uh, you know, Ben Holbrook sat in my seat, and I beat Ben in a seat race by less than a second. So it was not really much of a difference. But so 94 was my last competitive strokes. That was it. Wow. So my single, boom, gone. Now, how, so think back, how did that straightforward do at Worlds that year? The Worlds were in Indianapolis and they were in the petite finals. I don't know, but it was hard coming out and getting bumped out of that eight group. And I saw the writing on the wall going forwards towards 96. If I sat in there for the next quadrennial, it was going to be all or nothing. But that's what Mike required, all or nothing. And I was older. I was getting married. I was coaching. And I was uh, not going to be able to balance all this stuff. It was clear. And so you were so, like, what, 28, 27, 28 around that time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, I, I'm 37. And I, and I, when I was 28, I couldn't imagine doing all that stuff. Um, I, 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 before we move on, I do want to know about that head of the Charles race. Cause like you're talking about <laughs> some of the fastest men ever to row. Yeah. And you're sitting in this boat with them. Like, so where, where was Redgrave and Pinson? Where were you in that lineup? Yeah, so, uh, well, first of all, I was in the bow seat, the most important seat, you know? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> so, well, I think Peterson stroked, and I think they put Pinson and Redgrave in seven and six. I think that the Brits were seven, six, five, four, and then three Americans in the bow. Were you just, I mean, I would have had chills the whole time going down that race course. It, would, it had to be the best boat you've ever been in. It was fun, but no doubt it was fun. I remember sitting at the starting line because we started first. And, you know, when you're the bow man or the bow woman of a boat that's starting first at the head of the charge, you always have to sit there and then you turn around and look down the course because it's completely empty. And you get to see, you say, okay, here we go. We're going to rip this thing. And so, I mean, it was, look, it was fun. You know, if you think about it in history, like, yeah, those guys are amazing. But at the time, I was just, it was just another big boat I was in and just, you know, let her rip. It was good stuff. That's true. That's true. I was happy being there. Um, you know, I wasn't, I, I didn't blink when we set the course record. I, I was like, yeah, we probably should have set the course record. Uh, you know, it was, it was a good row. I do remember one thing. It was a little blustery. And I remember taking one stroke into a bridge where the wind caught my blade and I was like oh I, you know one of those where you put it in and you pray I just put it in I was like okay and it came out I was like okay here we go I'm good but, oh man all right I love that all right I love that let's let's get into your coaching so you decide okay you're married you're moving on you got this English English and, and economics major rowing has been in your blood for for years you go all in on coaching right so 95 you're in where do you where, where are you at so 94 i quit my job at rutgers i got married and i just quit i was like okay i, I gotta reset i gotta get out of new jersey i love new jersey i was there for a long time but i gotta get out of here i gotta get back to the northeast so i quit my job and i was unemployed I, you know got married in october came home and then mike Vespoli called me and so i went to work in the shop for that year sort of sat out went to work in the shop. And at that time I was like, okay, I got a coach. You know, working in the shop is hard. And uh, I just, I missed it. I wanted to coach. So then Dartmouth opened up, Scott Armstrong uh, brought me up there to be the freshman heavyweight coach for two years up at Dartmouth. And uh, yeah, so I was back in the game 
And uh, that was great working with Scott. He's a, you know, was an innovative guy, um, quirky guy, but really, really smart and ran a great program up there. It was a, a lot of fun. You know, Dartmouth was pretty hot. He had won the uh, sprints in 92. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so he had, you know, he was, he was, that place was rolling pretty well. My first year, we were terrible with the freshmen. And he kept saying, just coach from your gut, coach from your gut. I'm like, my gut tells me that we're not very good. <laughs> but then, uh, you know, I recruited my tail off. We got, we got some guys and uh, the next year, and actually I, I'm proud that those guys went on to win the ladies plate for him at Henley as seniors. There were some of those guys in there. So, yeah, so I was there for two years and then Chris Wilson, uh, approached me at the IRA. She was gonna become the new head coach of the Yale women. And she was she was like, hey, I want you to come coach the novice for me at Yale. And I was, I was like, oh, I never even thought about coaching women. And, um, you know, so I, we talked it over, my wife and I talked it over and I, I have to give her credit. She's like, oh yeah, you should definitely, we should go back down to Yale. So we went back down. And I was a novice coach for a couple of years and then uh, became the head coach after two years. And here we are. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to add a question that I wasn't prepared to ask. Uh, just I didn't, I didn't realize that I thought you were with women the whole time coaching. What no. was the biggest difference you noticed? Everybody asked that question. Of course they do. I want to know. <laughs> Tell me. Well, I mean, look, the, the first thing you realize when you coach both, both genders, uh, both teams is that is that uh rowing is rowing right rowing is rowing and uh i would say women are really tough i would say the women might be tougher they whine less they're tougher they they uh they have a really strong sense of team and uh it's it's a different it's definitely different i think the boat speed is you know you adjust to the boat speed but training the sport and all the elements exactly the same. It's kind no, this, of like uh, swimmers or men and women track athletes. It's, it's very similar. The uh, I, I had started coaching in 2009, did it for about six or seven years. And uh, I, I grew up in South Jersey and a guy I looked up to a lot was Dan Garbett. And I called Dan and I said, you know, I don't know who else to ask this question. Um, what do I do? I'm coaching some women here. And he says, like, coach them like you would coach anybody else, dude. I like, don't, don't change your style. They're going to respond right. the proper way. So just, just always remember that. And yeah, there are moments like I have a daughter and I, I sometimes catch myself trying to be a little bit different than I would be with my son or my two sons. And I'm like, no, stop, like treat, treat it, treat it the same. Uh, and that was, was a big moment for me i was i was in my early 20s and it it, it, it was a spark yeah um okay so let me let me get you've had a lot of successful years at yale right so i uh i want to know from all that time and the people that you were around you know were there who were the people that you would call consistently for advice and support like what were the former coaches or former athletes that you would always ask for advice well that's a good interesting question you know i i talk to pops every every two or three weeks you know, I stay in touch with him, you know, uh, Andy Teitelbaum is a good friend. Andy was at, at Rutgers when I was there as a student, and then he coached there when I was coaching as well. So we overlap. So I've known Andy for a long time. And uh, 
you know, actually I got a credit, Andy, you know, oh, I forget what year it was, probably 10 years ago, I was having some tough, tough years here. And I think at NCAAs, we had a really heartfelt conversation. I was getting ready to maybe walk away from coaching and, uh, you know, he, he helped me remember why I love it and staying in it. And, uh, you know, he's certainly somebody I talked to, you know, I'll tell you what, most recently, Steve has been a great, you know, person to talk to about rowing. He and I think about things, you know, rowing wise, very similar. You know, Andy Card has been here and anybody who knows Andy Card knows that that guy's brain is way too strong for being a rowing coach. He's very smart and uh, quirky, sure, but he's smart, man. And uh, he's a great source. And, you know, Ned Delgarzio is here right now. We have a great staff right now. And, you know, Mike Gennaro is here. And so, and of course, my assistants over the years, I got this guy who's been at my side, Jamie Schneider has been here for a long time. And all my assistants, you know, I learned from every one of them. Currently, Kristen Brownlee's back here, or excuse me, Wilhelm. I know her as Kristen Brownlee because that's what she was when she was on my team. But now she's Kristen Wilhelm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think different people at different times, you know, my athletes, you know, former athletes I talk to, you know, sort of, mo I kind of tend to stick with the most recent ones that have kind of cycled out because they have a pulse on what's going on right now. Um, you know, Taylor is somebody, Taylor Ritzel and Rachel Jeffers, like those guys I, I stay in touch with and talk to pretty regularly. You know, there's a handful of people. I, I'm sure I'm forgetting others, but there's a lot of people I talk to, no doubt. Probably the best source, though, for my coaching, and I would be lying if I didn't say this, is by far my wife. She, my wife is a teacher, and, uh, you know, it's been in education her whole career, and uh, she has given me a lot of very sage advice over the years no question how do you do you bring uh rowing home every day do you try to separate it out like as a coach because it's it's an obsession right so it's hard so, not to well for me the big separation is the summer you know people ask why i never did the u23 team coach the u23s or things like that i've always saved the summer for my family and for for stepping away from it um you know, it's it. No, I, I talk about rowing at home. There's no question about it. We talk about it. We try not to. She'll tell me, OK, enough. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, you know, my my son rows now. And, uh, you know, I, there's plenty of rowing talk going on. Where does where does he row? He happens to row for Steve right next door. So, <laughs> OK, <laughs> OK. Probably not to, uh, it's probably a little awkward for him, but it's, I, I, I like to say he goes by, I get to see him go by. You know? is, is he, is he better than you are? Actually he is, but, uh, but uh, he's on a very competitive team. He's on a really deep team, really deep. I, I don't know if I've ever told him that he's better than I am, but he, he, he definitely is. Well, he knows it now. I mean, he's he, only a second, he's only a second year. Uh, and he, uh, you know, he really didn't, we didn't push Rowan at all. It was, he was a swimmer. He swam. And then he kind of switched towards the end of his uh, swimming career over and did a little light rowing up at Old Lyme with Paul Fuchs, did some good stuff up there. And then, you know, during the COVID year, he he took a gap year before he came to Yale and he rode up at Saratoga with Eric Catalano in that group. Oh, and yeah. Really yeah. It was very good for him. So. All right. So, um, I, you know, before I get into a, uh, one of the deeper questions, I, I guess this is probably as deep. Rowing back in 04, 
06, much different than, than team atmospheres in today's world. Right. And you, you've, you've been around long enough. Like, I feel like so many coaches are tiptoeing around certain topics. They can't say certain things They're like the conversations are much different. Um, how much different is your management style now than it was in the early 2000s? Pause. I got to pause for effect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a lot different. Yeah. I mean, I think my, the athletes really, really shifted that group that graduated in 2010, they have great stories. I see them at weddings and things, and they love to reminisce about how, how hard I was, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, like everything else, the world's kind of changed and we adjust. If, if you're going to stay in it, as long as I've been in it, you have to adjust. Right. And it's not just like to the kids and what's, what's going on with them. It's to, you know, technology and everything. Like you got to adjust, you got to stay current, but the core of what we do is exactly, you know, the work is, is, is the work. And that doesn't change. And boat speed is boat speed. And that doesn't change. And the delivery may be a little adjusted. The language may be adjusted. But at the end of the day, when you back it into the stake boats, either you've done the work or you haven't done the work. And there's no change in that. No matter, There's no shortcuts there. So you have to do the work. And absolutely, you know, I've adjusted and evolved. NCAA has, you know, exploded. Um, it's, it's, it's made women's rowing just um, what it is today. It, and it wasn't really the same back in the late nineties, right? Um, things really took off. So what have you noticed in school support in the races? What have, what have, what have you watched change and develop over these last 23 years? Been a lot of changes. You know, I think the money, that's come into it has kind of driven it. You know, I think at first the adjustment was all about football and yeah, let's, let's not care. And then, and there wasn't enough coaching to go around to support these programs. And then as time went on, I think, and the coaching started to spread out. And I think departments started to realize, Hey, wait a second, this, we need to treat this like other sports. And they started to get, whatever Sears points for going, sending teams to NCAAs, you know, for the, for the collegiate cup, that's important to athletic departments. Uh, so, so it's kind of caught up. I also think the supply and demand for scholarship spots was, you know, not enough supply for all the spots originally. And then of course you break out and you go international and, uh, you know, early on it was kind of, you see a few international sprinkling in, but then of course, all the other countries, you know, at first it was, oh, American high schools exploded with rowing to fill these gaps. But now the British high schools are just as knowledgeable about getting over to the US. The Australians are, the Kiwis are, everybody is about getting over to the US. So the supply is catching up and there's more athletes. So the, the competition has spread out. Um, you know, the one thing that changed, the big change, I think, when I started here, they still had the at-large crews going to the NCAAs. And that's really how I was able to get Yale back to prominence because, you know, they had fallen on hard times. It had been a long, long time since we were highly successful here. We hadn't won the Ivy Championships 
in 24 years when, when we first applied. So, so we were able in that first year to get an eight in. And once you get an eight in, then those kids come back and they're fired up and they train it up and it becomes contagious. But to break in now, you have to break in as a team. And that's a really tricky thing. So to your point, I think there's a little bit more parity in women's rowing than there is in men's rowing. But the teams that get selected are pretty similar. The 20 team, 22 teams that are going to the NCAs, that's not, doesn't vary too much. It varies a little bit here and there. Okay. Now, yeah. So I, I, I hate to admit this, but I, I don't know much about women's rowing at the collegiate level. I've, I know, I, you know, quiz me on high school rowing, quiz me on men's rowing. Um, so you're saying that over the last collection of years, say 10, 15 years, it's been relatively the same 22 teams that go consistently to the NCAA, very, very different change in that. Yeah, it's it, pretty much, you know, uh, they select 22 every year, right? So maybe, there's a pool of 30, you know, 30, because there's always the bubble teams and one or two get punched out and don't make it. But it's so there's 90, roughly, I think there's 89 or 90 division one women's teams. And so it's constantly sort of that same core group of 30 teams that are going to the NCAAs. You remember the difference between, well, I know you have to be selected to the IRA, but it's hard not to be selected to the IRA. We're <laughs> yeah. honest about it. So, I mean, you, you have to be selected to the NCAAs and that's a difference. That's the difference. And then, and then, you know, going back, we, we've, we've, these first five, you know, four or five episodes this year, we've talked to um, IRA men's coaches and it's the same three teams that constantly win, like at every level, like they, they win the eight, they win the two V eight, they win the four women's rowing is different. Um, I personally think that's better for the sport. I think there, there should be different teams winning. There should be, um, not randomness. We already know who the top six or seven are. Um, yeah. but like Penn right now is doing really, really well. They've had a, a very good season last year. Fall season was incredible. I'm not saying my money's on them right now. The team but, to be. but they're the team to beat, right? And like they, they were, they were not in the hunt five years ago, yeah. you know, six years ago. Uh, I think that's great for the school and great for So, what's your perspective on that? On the fact that women's rowing has a lot more teams that are winning at that top level of a variety of them. Well, it's the scholarships. It's no question. It's the scholarships. I mean, it drives it. Look. It takes a lot to run a, a highly successful program. There has to be alignment, you know, straight through. You know, the administration has to be in line with the coaching, and the coaching has to be in line with the athletes, and the and then of course the alumni have to be in line, and everything has to. There has to be alignment. You hear college football coaches talking about that all the time. Like everybody's got to be on the bus. We got to be aligned and going in the same direction. And uh, there's no difference, you know, in rowing. If you look at where who's successful. <laughs> In rowing, it's just like every other sport. It's who has the athletes, you know, right? You know, it's it's who has the better athletes. You know, they have to be trained. Everybody's training, but when you get there, like it's who has the better athletes. So, in women's rowing, there's 20 scholarships at all these schools. It pulls, it's pulling athletes. So pulling, and and then it becomes who's going to out recruit who, and and then it. But in men's rowing, there's not as many opportunities per se. So that there's, you're really recruiting, you know, those four schools are really going after those top guys. If you're a top guy, why would you take a risk not going to one of those four schools? In women's rowing, those athletes are spread out more. And because of the money, because of the, 
the scholarship opportunities, it's spread out more. So that it creates parity. And, you know, the coaching has gotten better at a lot of places and on the women's side, you know. Well, now is it is it now teams are allowed to have three coaches at a minimum or what what's the what are the rules there? Explain well, to me just, what the rules are. Yeah, they just passed a rule that says uh, it used to be uh, four paid coaches, four paid and four volunteers. I think that was the old rule. The new rule is seven coaches any way you want it. So get rid of the volunteer. So you could pay seven full. You can have seven paid coaches in women's rowing, but that's, that's like a lot of coaches, but in, in the Ivy league for the record, it's two full-time, one half-time or part-time two full, one part-time. That's it. Wow. So you can have volunteer coaches, but that is, that just came out this month. So now it's seven coaches, any way you want it in division one women's rowing. And is the, is the amount of money that a, an assistant varsity coach make enough to, to live, like to have a, a decent living, or is it going to require a lot more uh, side hustles to, to make it work? Yeah. So that's a, there's a, that's a big question, right? So, because yeah. so, that's a, that's a question that could be answered on many levels. You know, if you, I, I suppose like an assistant coach at the low end is going to make around 40 or 30 on the low end and on the high end is going to make 80 or, or 90. Right. So, but the question, but then you get up and you say, well, what's an assistant women's volleyball coach make? What's an assistant women's softball coach make? And how much work, how many athletes are you responsible for? So, you know, is the pay in a line in our sport with what it is across the board with NCAA sports? I would, I, I've never done an official study, but I would say we're fault. We're behind. Women's rowing is behind, but the answer to your question is, you know, I don't know, when you come out of college, a teacher makes 50,000, you know, yeah. when you come out of college. So it's, it's pretty similar. Uh, is, are you going to get rich? Most likely not. That's not really a reason to go into coaching. Yeah. Yeah. I, I gosh, I have that argument all the time. Um, I, I was like, why am I doing finish line, you know, working on boats every day? Was it to get rich? No, because there's no money in <laughs> working on boats and being in rowing. It's like so hard. Uh, I want to, I want to, you, you got my, you got my head sort of like, you know, jumping around here. Um, I had this conversation just the other night and I'm paraphrasing and I know like I'm trying to get this thing out correctly, but the United States is, or the colleges are funding 20 scholarships for athletes. In the last Olympic cycle, we have done very bad at the international stage. Someone said, I think it's ridiculous that America is funding internationals to come over here, train, get, get the best training, the best food, the best everything to go back to their country and kick our asses at the Olympics. Um, what's your stance on that? Where, where, where are you in that argument? I think it does. It shouldn't matter. I'm like, I said to the guy, just knock it off. Like we're giving these people an opportunity they never had before. It's not about winning at the Olympics. Like we're changing their lives. Uh, I loved your perspective on that, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so, uh, so international athletes absolutely have a place here. I mean, this is a place for everybody, right? So uh, by having the best athletes in the world here and racing at the end, the women's NCAA championships is, is faster than the U23 world championships. Like yes. those are hotter than U23 worlds. So bringing them here 
is only going to make raise the level of work in every boathouse across the country. And those Americans in those boathouse are going to have to raise the level as well. The reason we're not, this is a whole nother conversation, but the, my opinion, the reason we're not successful internationally is because we don't pay our athletes. If you want to look at GB, when I was on the team, we were crushing GB. Pinsent and Redgrave were an anomaly. The rest of the team wasn't good. But as soon as they got lottery money, Great Britain took off. You know, as soon as they started funding, they, Great Britain, Britain took off. So why in the, our country where we're so wealthy, how are we not paying our national team athletes enough money so they can stay in the game and train? Like, I don't understand it. And I wondered that when I was an athlete, I remember I used to get $7,500 when I was on a team. I was like, whoa, but that's not enough. And you know, what? One of my assistants was Sarah Trowbridge. When she retired from the Olympics, she came here the year after. And the first year, I think she put her whole paycheck into paying off debt that she had accumulated over training. That's crazy. Like, wh why can't we pay these athletes? And then you're going to say, well, we don't, where's the money going to come from? Well, I don't know. You know, U.S. skiing has no problem funding that team. U.S. swimming has no problem funding that team. U.S. track and field has no problem funding that team. And why do we apologize for our sport and say, oh, we got to go 500 meters. We have to do all this. Why don't we just find companies that are in line with our core values of our sport? You know, work ethic, grinding, like a high level competition, like the fine line. Why can't we find corporate sponsors that can, that can afford to pay our athletes? As soon as we pay our athletes, they're going to stay in it longer and we're going to develop them and pay our coaches and do everything treat it like it's a professional sport, then you're going to go and win at a professional level. How, do you think it's important? How, how important is it that we win at the Olympics? Is winning everything? Or do you think it's, it's uh, yeah, I, I think it's essential. I think looking back, the reason I went into rowing was because I was watching Volp stroke that boat going down that course. And like, it was, that's what I saw, right? Like I started rowing in 99. I met some of the guys on the team. I looked up to them. I was like, I want to be just like that. And then I watched them win. I like, I am hooked for the rest of my life. And then I got to meet my heroes. I think it's essential that we win, but there, there's another argument that says it, it, that shouldn't always matter. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know anybody who's trying to be an Olympic athlete that doesn't want to win. Like there's nobody going to the Olympics to participate. Like, <laughs> I don't know those people. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's all it, of course. But then it's the it's the uh, it's the uh, Phelps, the Michael Phelps effect, right? Like as soon as Michael Phelps swims, swimming gets on the TV every four years. Phelps gets in the pool and swims, and then the next year you see a bump in nine and ten year old swimmers across the country. You know, if we win the eight, if we, I mean, what is this that we had to become a small boat nation? <laughs> what? Win the eight. We win the eight. We win the eight. We stand on that podium. We win the eight. You're going to see rowing tick up. You're going to see it. But you can't promote athletes, you know, unless unless they're winning. Like, yeah. Why like, is it? Why wasn't there enough promotion of the women's eight winning it for all those years? Because why? why wasn't there? Yeah. What's your? Because I, I, I personally like I, I bring this up with some people from that era. Like I ask any junior rower that is in like in my world. They don't know anything about that squad from all those years. Yeah. Ask U.S. Rowing. 
<laughs> you're asking the wrong guy. I mean, I knew what was going on with that, but I, you know, if I'm being honest, like I, yeah, how does it not? How do you, how do we not celebrate that? I mean, Tom went on this tear. He's the winningest international women's coach in history. 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 I mean, yep. I, I'm, I'm with you. All right, last question here, because this has been, this is, I mean, I've had a lot of fun. Uh, I've been asking this to some, some lately to some sec- successful coaches that also were on the international level. It's, uh, what did you love more? Crossing that line in 93, or maybe crossing and breaking the record at the Charles, or watching your crew win the NCAA? Which one has meant more to you? What, what, what's deeper in your memory banks? <laughs> Well, that's a big one. That's a good question. I mean, I, I can't really pick one or the other, but, you know, I was saying 07 on my first crew that won the NCAA championship that I was not, I was not, uh, the whole year, I never thought we were that fast. I was like, okay, we're good. We're, okay, we won. All right, what, next week. Okay, what we won. Okay. And then even when we got there, like USC was like, oh, those guys are, and then we won our heat or something by some crazy amount and they're like the timing's messed up they that you didn't really and then we caught a crab in the first five strokes of that final and we still won that race and i was hit by a, a wave of emotions when i was standing at oak ridge on that point when they went by i was like holy they're gonna win and that hit me and uh and that was that rattled me you know probably because it's most recent you know i think standing on the podium at the world championships and pan ams like those are big moments but I think you're more ready for it as a as an athlete because you've got work and work and work and you're getting there. So, no, I think coaching is, you know, I think that there's it's a little bit bigger because I think also you're older and you you're a little bit more knowledgeable. You're not just the young kid who's just like, yeah, of course I'm, of course I belong here. But I, you know, you realize what it goes into it and realize, you know, just how rare those moments are. So I, I think as a coach, it's probably bigger. And you got you got some titles behind you. I mean, is that one of those trophies back there from the 07 crew? No, they, they yeah. But remember, it's that when those guys won. So let's let's be clear on this. You're not the NCAA champion because it's a team title. So you're the event winner. So they won the event in seven and and uh, eight and ten. And then our two V's won it twice. But they're not the team. T- so, so those are team trophies from. Uh, from some of those years, yeah, but they're not, they're second or third place, but they're not the, the team champion, so. So when you won the team trophy, like, yeah. was that, a, was that a, a, a bigger moment than winning the event in 07? Like, what, because it's a big deal, right? Winning the team trophy. When you win the, I think everybody in our sport, maybe it's just the older generation, but you want to coach the fastest boat in the country. Hands down. So, I mean, look, there's, there's a lot of discussion and I'm all about the team and I get the team thing, but I think every coach is going to tell you, you know, they want the fastest boat in the country. That's a mic drop moment right there. I just spent the last hour here talking to Will Porter, the head coach of uh, women's Yale uh this is episode six uh season four for everyone tuning in and getting to this point you 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 just gotta cheer for yale so we got the season coming up we got just a couple months away from uh the first uh dual races of the year 
Will, I will be seeing you at the NCAA, I hope. Um, I'm sure there's an event that I'll, I'll be seeing you soon at. Thanks for today. I had a great time. And um, everyone tuning in, like, we got more of the IRA and NCAA coaches coming up next week. Thanks for tuning in.